Hello, everyone, and welcome to the May 22nd edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A county in New York State has sued Purdue Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, and other drug makers, accusing them of fraudulent marketing that played down the risks of prescription opioid painkillers, leading to a drug epidemic. The case, filed in a New York state court, is the latest lawsuit by local and state governments seeking to hold drug makers accountable for a national opioid epidemic. The lawsuit claims the drug makers, through deceptive marketing, misrepresented the dangers of long-term opioid use to doctors, pharmacists, and patients. The lawsuit alleges that those misrepresentations about drugs like Purdue's OxyContin and Endo's Opania ER led Orange County, New York to incur health care, criminal justice, and other costs related to addiction. The drug makers also faced lawsuits filed last year by Santa Clara and Orange counties in California, the city of Chicago, and Mississippi over their marketing practices. The California case was placed on hold in 2015 pending the outcome of an FDA investigations that were underway at the time. Chicago sued the drug makers in 2014, saying they misled doctors and the public about the addictive nature of opiates and pushed prescriptions despite known dangers of addiction. Orange County, New York, which has a population of nearly 400,000, said it recorded 943 opioid-related emergency department admissions in 2014, and 44 deaths from overdoses involving opioid pain relievers in 2015. J&J called the allegations unfounded and noted its drugs carry U.S. Food and Drug Administration mandated warnings. Purdue said it shares officials' concerns about the opioid crisis and is committed to working collaboratively to find solutions. Endo and Teva declined to comment. Opioid drugs, including prescription painkillers and heroin, killed over 33,000 people in the United States in 2015, more than any year on record. The U.S. Justice Department sued United Health Group, accusing the nation's largest health insurer of a billion-dollar fraud scheme. The complaint filed in federal court in Los Angeles is the second time in one month that the government intervened in whistleblower lawsuits against United Health. The latest complaint came after the Justice Department intervened in a lawsuit brought by former United Health executive Benjamin Poling, whose whistleblower case was filed under seal in 2011. The Justice Department alleged that United Health obtained inflated risk adjustment payments based on untruthful and inaccurate information about the health status of patients enrolled in its Medicare Advantage plans. The lawsuit said UnitedHealth's conduct cost the Medicare program over $1.14 billion between 2011 and 2014 and the Justice Department is seeking treble damages under the False Claims Act as well as penalties. Polling filed his lawsuit under the False Claims Act, which allows whistleblowers to sue companies on the government's behalf to recover taxpayer money paid out based on fraudulent claims. If successful, whistleblowers receive a percentage of the recovery. 
A government decision to intervene is typically a major boost to such cases. Polling also sued other insurers claiming that they, along with United Health, had defrauded the United States of hundreds of millions of dollars and likely billions of dollars through claims for payments from Medicare for the elderly. While the Justice Department has not pursued claims against other companies, in March, it said it was investigative Centene Corporation's Health Net Incorporated, Aetna Incorporated, Cigna Corporation's Bravo Health Incorporated, and Humana. The Justice Department has also intervened in a related whistleblower lawsuit brought by James Swoven, a former Senior Care Action Network Health Plan employee and a consultant to the risk adjustment industry. United Health had no immediate comment. It previously said it rejects the claims in the underlying whistleblower lawsuit and would fight the claims vigorously. And now our crime report. Turlock dermatologist Basil Hantash, MD, faces charges of healthcare fraud after seeking payments from insurers allegedly for surgeries that were not performed. A federal grand jury returned the eight-count indictment against the 44-year-old physician who has been medical director and co-owner of Advanced Skin Institute in Turlock. According to the indictment, the case involves claims seeking payment for acne surgeries that Hantash submitted to insurance companies. An FBI investigation concluded that those patients had received only chemical peels or microdermabrasions which are, not, which are cosmetic treatments often not covered by insurers. The indictment names insurers Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield of California as the victims. The doctor's attorney said that this is a disagreement between the doctor and insurance company adjusters trying to save money and that they are contesting the charges. The maximum penalty for the felony charges is 10 years in prison and $2 million in fines. Prosecutors maintain that chemical peels at the Turlock Clinic were primarily done by licensed estheticians who are not allowed to perform surgeries. The treatments remove outer layers of damaged skin to bring out a healthier-looking appearance. Insurance companies mostly refuse to pay for chemical peels because they are cosmetic treatment. Dermatologists are reimbursed, however, for medically necessary acne surgeries in which a surgical blade is used to cut a lesion and drain fluid. The federal government alleges that Hantash and Advanced Skin Institute provided falsified medical records in response to an Anthem Blue Cross audit. The records falsely claimed that Hantash and the clinic had performed acne surgeries on certain patients by using a surgical blade. But the defense attorney said the practices at Advanced Skin Institute and the billings were appropriate. And in regulatory news, the DIR and the DWC have suspended two more vendors from participating in California's workers' compensation system. The DWC Acting Administrative Director George Parasato issued orders of suspension for these providers who had not appealed the suspension notices issued in mid-April. Michael R. Drabat operated California Pharmacy Management and Industrial Pharmacy Management companies 
that participated in a scheme to illegally refer patients for spinal surgeries, which led to more than $508 million in fraudulent bills. He pled guilty in U.S. District Court last year to conspiracy and illegal kickback charges. He is the son of Michael D. Drobot, the hospital operator of Pacific Hospital of Long Beach, who also pled guilty for his part in the kickback scheme. The DWC suspended the senior Drobot on April 28. Also suspended was Stephen Hauser, the manager of post-surgical rehab specialists of Santa Fe Springs. He was charged in U.S. District Court for participating in an illegal scheme to refer patients for durable medical equipment. He pled guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud, honest services mail fraud, and violation of the Travel Act. AB 1244 requires the DWC Administrative Director to suspend any medical provider, physician, or practitioner from participating in the workers' compensation system for several reasons. If the provider has been convicted of a crime involving fraud or abuse of the Medi-Cal or Medicare programs or the workers' compensation system, fraud or abuse of a patient, or related types of misconduct. Also, if the provider has been suspended due to fraud or abuse from the Medicare or Medicaid program, including Medi-Cal, or if the provider's license or certificate to provide health care has been surrendered or revoked. There are currently 25 providers suspended from California's workers' compensation system. AB 1512, if passed, establishes the Opioid Addiction Prevention and Rehabilitation Act in California and would impose a tax upon the distribution of opioids at the rate of one cent per milligram of active opioid ingredient. According to the Board of Equalization, an estimated $88.1 million in fee revenues could be generated. The proposed California law requires the wholesaler to collect the tax from the manufacturer and requires the wholesaler to separately state the amount of the tax imposed by the provisions of this bill on the purchase order. The purchase order shall be given by the wholesaler to the manufacturer at the time of sale. The wholesaler will be required to remit the tax to the California State Board of Equalization. The Assembly Committee staff speculates that if this tax were to work as envisioned, funding for the local addiction prevention and rehabilitation programs would reduce future opioid addiction and use. In a way, authorities claim this tax functions almost as a Pigovian tax, similar to the tax on tobacco products. Although it is unclear if the purpose of the tax is meant simply to fund prevention and rehabilitation programs, or if it is meant to decrease the use of opioids as a prescription drug. A Pigovian tax is a tax levied on any market activity that generates negative externalities. The tax is intended to correct an inefficient market outcome and does so by being set equal to the social cost of the negative externality. However, unlike tobacco, opioids are predominantly paid for by third parties other than the consumer of the opioid. In essence, the tax will be paid by insurance carriers, 
self-insured employers, and government-subsidized health care plans. For the most part, consumers of opioid medications will not notice any adverse financial effect should this bill become law. The California Council of Community Behavioral Health Agencies in support of the bill argues that this bill would provide critical resources needed to help end California's opioid addiction epidemic. In opposition, the Healthcare Distribution Alliance argues that this bill creates a new and onerous tax that will have a burdensome impact on the healthcare industry. The Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America argues that this bill establishes a complicated, arbitrary regulation and tax on an already overtaxed sector. The California Chamber of Commerce has listed this proposed law as one of its 2017 job killer bills. The Trump administration has recently awarded grants for states to combat the opioid crisis. The funding, which is the first of two rounds, would be provided through the state-targeted response to the opioid crisis grants administered by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. A new California Workers' Compensation Institute report on the use of ICD-10 codes in California workers' comp during the transition from ICD-9 system finds that 99% of submitted medical bills now use the new ICD-10 codes, but many lack the additional characters that better define the injury, identify the type of encounter, and improve communication. In October 2015, the 10th Revision of the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems became the standard classification system for all healthcare delivery systems in the United States, including workers' compensation. The adoption of the new system was the first time in 21 years that the codes used by medical providers to describe a patient's clinical status has been updated. The transition from the outdated ICD-9 coding system was primarily intended to allow more accurate and precise descriptions of a patient's clinical status. Following Medicare's lead, the California Division of Workers' Compensation allowed medical providers a one-year transition period during which they could use ICD-10 codes that did not strictly meet the level of coding specificity called for by the new classification format and structure. But, as of last October, workers' comp medical services that are not coded at the required specificity level are out of compliance. This CWCI report was the first in a two-part series. The Department of Industrial Relations and the Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation announced that the Senate Rules Committee has appointed Mona Garfias to the commission as an employer representative. The position does not require Senate confirmation. The commission consists of eight members, four representing employers and four from organized labor. The governor appoints four commissioners and the Speaker of the Assembly and Senate Rules Committee each appoint two members. Since 1998, Mrs. Garfias has been Director of Claims for DMS Facility Services, a large unionized employer in the janitorial industry with over 1,800 employees. 
She started her career in the insurance industry 27 years ago and has held various workers' compensation claims positions on both the insurance carrier and insurance brokerage side. Ms. Garfias was instrumental in the implementing of the Ross Pike Memorial Workers' Compensation Carve-Out and Alternative Dispute Resolution Program and continues to be involved in that on a daily basis. Cheswick created by the Workers' Compensation Reform Legislation of 1993 is charged with examining the health and safety and workers' compensation systems in California and recommending administrative or legislative modifications to improve its operations. And in other news, William Zachary is a senior fellow at the Sedgwick Institute and is former group vice president for risk management for Albertson's companies. According to his commentary published in the East Bay Times, things have gotten much better in California workers' compensation recently. He admits that California's system is as maligned as any in the nation and is a $26 billion behemoth. But the rap on California's system is that it overcharges employers and shortchanges workers with the difference ending up in the pockets of scurrilous medical providers and other ne'er-do-well vendors. But such criticism, he says, are frequently based on cases that fall outside of the typical claims experience. These cases drive news coverage which spawn legislative proposals to fix the system. But beneath the headlines, Mr. Zachary argues that facts show that California's system has improved by many measures. For example, higher benefits. In 2012, lawmakers increased injured worker disability benefits by $1 billion using money squeezed out of the system inefficiencies and cracking down on fraud. A review by the Department of Industrial Relations shows that benefits have increased by 30%. How about stable insurance rates? California remains the most expensive state in the notion, but reforms have halted the wild swings that took employers for a ride every few years. Compared to 2001 through 2009, when rates shot up 80% and then fell by 67%, rates have now moved up and down by 5% or less over the past four years. And now we have fewer claims. Between 2010 and 2014, workers' comp claims were increasing in California while decreasing in other states driven largely by injury claims in Los Angeles. In 2015, claim filings started to decrease again, consistent with national trends and California's own decades-long decline in workplace injuries. Also, now we have quicker claims closure. Since 2009, California's rate of claims closed within three years has increased from 55% to 60%. And in 2016, lawmakers empowered the Department of Industrial Relations to suspend medical providers who have been indicted or convicted of medical fraud, yet continue to treat injured workers and submit payment demands known as liens. Thus far, the DIR has halted one billion dollars worth of these liens and suspended 23 fraudulent medical providers. And since the early 2000s, California has worked to adopt medical treatment guidelines for injured workers that are based on published medical evidence. 
Although criticized as cookbook medicine and criticized as an impediment to care, research shows that today 95% of all medical treatment requests are approved through utilization review. Just 4% are properly denied because they are not supported by medical evidence. That's a 99% success rate for evidence-based care. Squeezing inappropriate and fraudulent care out of the system has halted huge spikes in California's work comp medical inflation. After a five-fold increase since 1990, average medical costs per claim have decreased by 10% since 2011. And yes, the California system still has problems. It is still the most expensive. We have more claims that result in a partial permanent disability award than any other state in the nation. Our claims are more expensive and involve more litigation than elsewhere. And we spend a disproportionate amount on expenses to deliver benefits to injured workers. On balance, however, Mr. Zachary concludes that California's workers' compensation system is as healthy and stable as at any time in recent history. And in industry news, Tampa's My Matrix is a 16-year-old pharmacy benefits manager that processes thousands of prescriptions every year. That skill set caught the eye of Giant Express Scripts, the nation's largest pharmacy benefits manager. Express Scripts reported that it is acquiring My Matrix, but the terms of the deal were not disclosed. Express Scripts said the acquisition will expand its pharmacy services offerings for workers' compensation clients and offer new growth opportunities for the company. My Matrix has over $123 million in revenue for 2015 and over 200 employees. Express Scripts is expecting to lose its contract with Anthem, its largest customer, when it expires at the end of 2019. The Anthem contract brought in about $17 billion in revenue, or about 17% of Express Scripts' 2016 total revenue of $100.3 billion. Express Scripts continues to search for strategic acquisitions and was particularly interested in opportunities in cost containment, payer services, workers' compensation, specialty pharmacy, and healthcare analytics. Express Scripts reported first quarter net income of $546.3 million on revenue of $24.65 billion. Liberty Mutual is shutting down its research arm that put it at the forefront of workplace injury prevention prosthetic limb development, and the push for safer car features, including collapsible steering columns for six decades. Up to 44 employees, mostly scientists and researchers, could be laid off when the company ends the program on June 6. The company will no longer conduct peer-reviewed research, considered the gold standard for studies, which extended its reach worldwide. The research influenced up occupational safety guidelines that were widely used to prevent injuries in the workplace. When Liberty Mutual founded the research facility in 1954, it was one of a few organizations studying injuries in the workplace and on the road. But since then, many more outlets are researching workplace issues, and the nature of work has changed as well. 
A Liberty Mutual spokesman said that other organizations and universities are now better positioned to do that kind of research. Liberty Mutual will focus its research efforts on partnerships with universities that are involved in workplace studies. The company helps fund work at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, UMass Lowell, and MIT. Liberty Mutual was among a handful of insurers that ran their own research centers. The institute focused heavily on workplace injuries, falls, carpal tunnel syndrome, and the impact of repetitive work because Liberty Mutual began as a workers' compensation insurer covering railway, shipbuilding, and tannery workers heard on the job. As recently as 2012, Liberty Mutual was the largest workers' comp insurer with $4.2 billion in premiums, but by 2015, Liberty Mutual had fallen to fifth in market share with $2.5 billion in premiums. It has scaled back its workers' compensation business as rising medical costs and state regulations cut into profits. And over the years, it has expanded into auto and home insurance and other commercial lines. A former director of the Institute commented that the closure is disappointing and that it was a way to distinguish liberty in the global marketplace. The research that its scientists conducted was published in scientific journals and accessible to everyone, including competitors. Working with MIT in the early 1960s, researchers helped develop the first battery-powered prosthetic elbow called the Boston Elbow. Holliston-based Liberating Technologies Incorporated, a manufacturer and distributor of prosthetic devices, started out as a Liberty Mutual project until it was spun off as an independent company around 2001. Liberty Mutual will keep open the Hopkington facility where driver training programs and classes for claims adjusters will continue. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Lloyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.